0: Good morning, church. Good morning. It is a beautiful day outside. Holy moly. Loving this fall weather. I like it a lot more than the summertime weather. I'll be perfectly honest. I'm with Leah there. If we can get a little fall. Now, mark my words, after three or four more months of this, I'll be like, boy, when are we going to get some warm weather back around here? But right now, it feels so nice. Uh, as uh, Leah mentioned, we'll be finishing up the book of 1 Peter, Today, today will be chapter five, and um, and if you're wondering where we go next, it's right into Second Peter. Uh, these these two letters are uh, they they go together quite well, as you might expect, and we're gonna we're gonna preach them together because I think it makes a, lo- a ton of sense. But today we'll be finishing up First uh, Peter chapter five. Um, I've at least mentioned several times that there's like there's themes weaving through here, uh, themes of submission. Uh, themes of suffering uh, basically really putting ourselves well underneath god to be used however he would choose and being not just like accommodating but excited to be joyous to be motivated to be ready and willing and able to do that and to do those sorts of things we require the holy spirit and as we as we wrap this letter up i think this this final chapter is an excellent summary not every book does this. Uh, sometimes the letters close with a, a long-winded goodbye, but today it's a little bit different. <laughs> it kind of recaps nicely with a, kind of, a small goodbye. So if you've got your Bibles, feel free to uh, turn First Peter chapter 5. If not, it's on the screen, and uh, follow along with me. So, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed... For God opposes the opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is true, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful for the opportunity to preach today, as I am every opportunity to preach. Um, it's a wonderful thing to begin a new book, Lord, and it's a wonderful thing to end a book. Uh, it, it's, Lord, I'm thankful for the, this closing chapter. I'm thankful for the continuity of your word, the wisdom of your word, and Lord, I pray that every idea that we have, every thought that we, uh, we, we, we meditate upon, Lord, that it is born of Your Word and Your Word only, Lord. Help us not to lean on our own understanding and help us to take books that might seem challenging on their face regarding things like suffering and how to do that well and how to submit in a world, in a church, in a family, in a society that makes submission more and more difficult when we see what's happening around us, Lord. Help us to, through Your Spirit, make those things possible to show the world that you are indeed sovereign and good and powerful and alive and making a difference yet today. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. Thank you for this time together. you to your sons, I pray. Amen. All right. It's the final chapter, and I will assert again that the theme culminates here. There is a final greeting. Nearly every one of these books in the Bible that we read, especially the letters, as you might expect, has a, a greeting at the end. They open with a greeting. Hello, it's me. How's things going? Anyway, let's talk about something important. And then, by the way, uh, let everybody you know, say hi to these other people that I forgot to mention early on. But the final greeting here is rather terse. <laughs> if you heard, it kind of boils down to just a handful of verses, a couple things, and that's it. Um, a little bit different in some regards, but I think it speaks a lot to what Peter was trying to communicate. This letter, um, the, 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 ma- the, the subject matter therein, is important and critical and it needed to be said and was clearly the preeminent reason for writing the letter and we open up with an elder exhortation i feel like i've felt in the past it's about time he addressed this leadership right everyone's frustrated with the leadership around here what's going on who's running this show right i could do it better someone else could do it better i would have done that i can relate to both sides of this when we hear Peter talking to the elders about doing this rightly, I want to nod my head. Oh, yeah, I've seen plenty of elders screw that up. Here I stand as an elder, and I'm telling you, I've screwed it up. It's frustrating. Peter's reminding us that he too is an elder. That reminder serves two purposes. If, if you remember some, from some of our other studies, there's this real notion, Paul dealt with us a lot. Well, you know, I, I listen to Paul, but not you. So Paul, a lot of times, those letters would say, hey, the elder so-and-so whom I love and have put in place, you know, honor him. Peter's trying to let them understand, make it very clear to them that the overseers that are, but are part of this congregation, that's like Peter. If you respect Peter, respect them. Not because I'm Peter and not because they're the elders, or they're them rather, but because they are the elders. This is a position that has been appointed by God. We're doing our honest best to make sure the people in that position are qualified to do it. Be in prayer for them. Support them. Care for them. Help them. They likewise will do the same for you. But he opens up with advice straight for the... I exhort the elders among you. Shepherd the flock that is among you. Exercising oversight. This advice is for every leader. Everyone. It doesn't matter what you do. He's talking to the elders and he's exhorting them here. But the advice that he gives is great leadership advice. Be good shepherds. Shepherd the flock of God. If he wanted to say, and you will hear me say, that's kind of like a dad. I say that a lot. It's very fatherly advice. If he wanted to make this sound like a family, he could have said that. He could have said that. He could have said, hey, dads, be good to all those kids in your church. But he didn't. I don't know what the subtle difference is there other than the care that you have for the sheep is a a definite treatment that the the sheep may never become something other than, than a sheep. And that's okay too. Shepherd, care for them. Keep careful watch of them. Treat them as if they're fragile and precious. And that you, they, are, there's a symbiosis there. Sheep without shepherds are doomed. Kids without parents can make it. Sheep without shepherds, doomed. Shepherds, take the job seriously. Don't throw your hands in the air, stupid sheep. That's not what we're supposed to do. Exercise oversight because God did that for you. God was a shepherd for you when you were ignorant, and He corralled you along, and He drug you along, and you didn't know why. He didn't explain everything to you, but He kept you from running off the cliff. Well, He put a fence in front of me. He saved your life, but it hurt my head. Thank God your head is hurting, and you're not in a a big pile of goo at the bottom of a cliff. These sorts of things are important for leaders. We exercise that oversight because God did it for us, and we do it willingly not because we have to. I could tell you as a leader, if anyone here has ever served in leadership capacity at any point, that is a tough thing. There are things you will be required to do as a leader that you do not want to do as a leader. Lots of times it's going to be things like paperwork, maybe firing somebody, maybe chastising somebody formally. Really, really awkward, really uncomfortable. Most people don't like doing it. Now, there's some masochists or folks that like to torture. They'll love that part. Let me let me have it. Who needs fire today? I'll do it. I want to watch the color drain from their face. I love that part. That's not what we're supposed to be doing as elders either, right? We're not supposed to enjoy the punitive side of leadership. But when we understand that we're sheep, or that we are shepherds and that our congregation is sheep, or, or, or that approach, that mindset, it changes things. If you've ever had a pet you know that they're slightly different than kids. There's a lot of similarities. They both make messes, they both plead ignorance, but there is a, a certain degree of, of hopelessness about your pet ever really rising to the occasion. Like, they're never, they're never going to potty train themselves. They're never gonna to learn to drive a car, get a license and conduct business. We don't usher them off to pet college and then they start a life of their own and come back and visit with the grand pets. That doesn't occur. Pets are ours until they're dead. Kids, we expect them to go do something different. So they're, they're vastly different in some regards. But also, babies and puppies, almost indifferent. They both make huge messes and they require a lot of care and they drive you nuts sometimes and they are very cute and you love them deeply, but man, when, what have we done? When we, when we look at these approach and we look at what we're doing this for, it's because we want to. When people get pets, we're not assigned pets. But people collect them all the time. We're not assigned kids. Even foster parents are adopted. You choose to do that. Why? Because we want to invest in something. Eldership, leadership in the church, same exact exercise. God has appointed me father of Emma, husband to Jane. I know this. I had a hand in both of those. (laughs) But it's God's appointment. And if I take that task in my head as God's task for me, then it changes the outlook on this. I'm not beset by that. I chose to do it, but yet God ordained it. And that's magical and and, and mysterious and awesome. Same here. Oh, you chose to be an elder. Yeah, I did, but I didn't. I accept the denomination, but in prayer, I realize this is God's calling for me. So the approach that I take, the care and feeding for the church, I want to see them succeed. I want to see the sheep live long and prosperous lives. And in God's unbelievable exercise, the sheep can become shepherds. You don't get that in pets. Your pets don't graduate to childhood. They're pets. But the sheep-shepherd analogy, that breaks down after a while because suddenly suddenly I've kept the sheep well long enough that the sheep can become shepherds. They themselves can... can, can and we almost expect that to happen. That's part of the gig. And the last bullet is why? Not for gain, not for our glory, but for God's glory. Tons of people, especially in America, are rewarded for leadership. Good for you. That means something. You earned it. You achieved it. Way to go. You're an executive. You're a VP. You're now become. you know, the, the, if someone sues the company, they can sue you. Ooh, what an exciting opportunity. Church is not that way. This isn't about being promoted. The leadership that, that, that Peter's talking about is this leadership based off of sacrifice. How do we know that? Because he tells us, it's not by domineering over, the way, over those we lead. We're supposed to lead by example. Anyone ever heard that one? I've been hearing it my whole life well it's biblical the world cites this all the time lead by example, do it in your job, do it in your family do it in the world <clears throat> it's exactly what Peter's saying to do 1 Peter 5.3 not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock you want to show folks how to be a good flock how to be a good sheep be a good, shep- be a good sheep you're also a shepherd, but be a good sheep well how can you be a good sheep, you're in charge well, yes and no When it comes to the flock, submit, subject, a.k.a. submit to the elders. Now, I will say this isn't about finger wagging. This isn't about told you so. Hey, you guys got to listen to the leadership around here. We're sick and tired of that. It's much like marriage. If you've got a marriage that works that way, it in, in, in needs some help, right? If a husband is insisting that his wife submits and his wife's resistant to submission, they need to have a conversation seriously, perhaps, with a counselor about what, what the root cause of this is. It's easy to submit when the leadership is serving. Anyone ever experienced that? Working underneath great leadership in any regard, and you find yourself happily doing whatever they ask, willing to know, what, how else can I serve? I believe you are invested in our success. I will do what needs to be done. If you've ever experienced the opposite of that, many have, you find that very difficult. What you're asking me to do is not right. It's immoral. It's unconstitutional. It's whatever. That's a problem. I'm not going to do that. I've lost respect for you, and and it's going to be difficult to earn that back, and I'm second-guessing everything you do, and I'm checking it by the letter of the law to make sure that you're not asking me to commit a crime because you are not serving me. You're serving yourself, or you're serving some other interest that is not us. Likewise, It's very easy to lead when the congregation is serving. If you've ever been in leadership and you're trying to help a team that's really argumentative and constantly backbiting and infighting and debating every single request you make, it becomes a place where you find yourself in the punitive phase of leadership all the time. Quiet. That's another demerit. That's another... I I, want to help. I want to get something done. But all I'm spending my time on is trying to get everybody to stop being idiots. But if the congregation is serving, if the folks that are part of the team are serving... They've got servant hearts. Leadership is easy. If the sheep are doing what they're supposed to do and they're not constantly running away, being a shepherd's a pretty, pretty good gig. Likewise, if the shepherd's good at his job, then the sheep find it very difficult to get in trouble because the shepherd's always there pulling them back. It's interesting how this works, right? It's exactly the way God wants it to be. Fundamentally, pride is not our friend. If you doubt, check the quotation. 1 Peter five. 5 God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is cited in Job, it's in Proverbs, it's all over the place. It's, it's cited exactly quoted the same way in James, actually. But it's not a new idea, but this notion haunts leaders. It's really, really difficult when it comes to leadership in any capacity, even those aspiring to be leaders, to keep pride out of it. I want to be proud of my achievements. The world tells us absolutely to be proud of our achievements. That's mainly the reason you try to achieve them. We give people medals and certificates and things to hang up on walls and show off to other people that achievements. Now, we do that oftentimes. Or we're happy for other people. We want to extol them for their good behavior. Well done. That's wonderful what has occurred. Congratulations. Thank you. Yes, it's, it is wonderful what has occurred, but I know there's a, a lot of pieces that move around us, and it's not about me. My service as elder is not about me. My spiritual gifts, as we talked about last week, they're not about me. <laughs> they are given to me by God, sovereignly to be used for others. Hey, you made it to eldership. Congratulations. What's the point of that? To serve others. That's it. There's nothing else to be had there. There isn't a special line. You don't get a discount. Health care costs the same. I park in the same spots as everybody else here. There's nothing doing. it. Nothing doing. it. We must be humble if we understand who God is. That's the big thing. If you feel that getting into any leadership position, what he's telling the elders here is if you feel that eldership is a gold star for you and not a gold star for God, back to the beginning. Back to the beginning. You got it all wrong. All wrong. Your ability to be a good elder is, is, is directly correlates to your ability to appreciate who God is and to know that we will be exalted in God's time if you've ever been in leadership, you'll know that it is not a picnic. Some leadership may be, I don't know, right? But the stuff I've ever been in charge of ever has a lot more frustrations than it does benefits. Now, it's not to say that the benefits are bad and sometimes they're exceptional when things really come together, but sometimes you just want to throw your hands in there and be done with it. This is the point of eldership. In church, you are supposed to feel like, I can't do this. I don't want to do this, right? God's like, right, but but you're going to do it because I've called you to this and you agreed to do it. And if you're telling me you can't do it, that puts, me right, that puts you right where I need you, which is depending on God to get the work done. I can't believe it came together. I can't believe the, the thing happened at the church. Yeah, me either. Well, you were in charge of it. <laughs> it may have seemed that way, but by in charge, if you meant on my, my face to the ground, begging God to intercede for my flock. Yeah, I did that well, that's not much of a leadership. Like, that's all I had. And it turned out it was more than enough. Why? Because God. God will exalt us in His time. Nine failed endeavors as a church, one successful one, praise God. That was His time. Now, we say this, church, and then we turn right around and say, now, anyway, back to brass tacks. Count the numbers up. Where are the baptisms? How many people? Are... But the reality is, if we believe what the Word says... Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. That's it. At the proper time. Are you exalted? No, not the proper time. I don't know. It feels like the proper time. Then pray about it. Maybe there's something to be doing. But guess what? The moment you pray about it, you get a conviction. You start taking action. Then the exaltation happens. That was the proper time. (laughs) Ta-da! It's either proper or it's not. 1 Peter five seven is probably one of my favorite, I wouldn't call it my life verse, but it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible because I, it's so tender. I, it, it is simply fantastic. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Some translations will say, casting all of your cares on him because he cares for you. Nobody cares for you like God does. If you're in our small group today, you're probably thinking, well, does he really care for everybody? You should, should come to our small groups. It's great discussions. But the sum total is... This is true. Cast your cares on Him because He cares for you. Failure to do that is an answer to the question, do you think your anxieties are a surprise to God? If so, then you probably are reticent to cast them because God's plate's pretty full and this is a big thing and I don't want to burden God with this. Now we would, oh, that's silly, I would never say that, but we walk through our lives beloved as if that's what we believe. People getting eaten alive by anxiety and worry and concern. It's reasonable to have worries and concerns. Things come up and you want to know what to do. I want to alleviate it. I don't know what comes next. That could be bad. It could set in motion things that are catastrophic. This is all true. What do I do with that? Cast them on God. Not to Him. Not beside Him. On God. Go to God. Take this I can't process this. I don't know what to do with this. But I know you care for me, so I'm going to put this on you. You're sovereign. This situation, you are aware of it. You orchestrated it. It's your problem, God, not mine. Well, you can't. That's, God doesn't make this. Well, we talked about this in our small group, too. If you don't come to our small groups, you are missing out. They are fantastic because we get to dig deep. We get to talk about these things that are really tough. I don't have time to go in here or I'm going to be here for another two hours. But suffice to say, anxiety is a struggle. We all deal with it. But anxiety that eats us alive will stand in conflict with the knowledge that God is sovereign. It has to. I'm doubting that God will see me through. I'm worried. About what? Death? Sickness? Do you not think God's aware of those? He is cast them on God. Guess what? They're gods. It's all God. He's in charge. And as we try to get down this road and we try to figure out how to do that, we see very repetitive advice from last week as well. Sober mind and watchful. Our anxieties will take our sober mind and get it drunk with worry. Anxieties will be to cloud our judgment. We can't pay attention because we're concerned. What if I make the wrong decision? What if I don't choose properly? What if I marry the wrong person? What if I go to the wrong college? What if, I, what if I don't study enough? What if I study too much? What if I don't get enough sleep? What if I sleep too long? <sighs> I can't do anything. What? There's, so, there's so many possible bad outcomes. That's not sober-minded, and that's not watchful. Our anxieties rip that away. Be rid of those. Give them to God. He wants them. We're commanded to give it to him, so let's just do it. You may see Peter telling us the devil is real, and he is our adversary. The devil is real he is our adversary. He is not God. He is not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent, but he is real. He is also not fun-loving and trying to make a party world. He is our adversary. People have turned the devil into this massive specter that's responsible for every single bad decision I make. Not me. The devil made me do it. Baloney. I make plenty of bad decisions. That doesn't disqualify the devil's realness. He's real. Well, you know, the devil may be this way, but I have a good time when I'm in sin, so the devil must be a party guy. No, he is not a party guy. Ask anybody that's ever jumped out of an airplane, falling with a parachute on is very fun. Falling without one? Not fun. It's the same fall. The ending is drastically different. The devil wants you to feel like you're, you're, you're involved in the exhilaration of skydiving, but there's no parachute. A few minutes of fun followed by catastrophic death. That's what the devil wants. He doesn't want us to have fun and rebellion. He wants to destroy us and those around us. Bringing me down, that's great. Bringing down my whole family, that's even better. How about my whole church family? How about my whole city? How about my state? How about my country? How about the world? If I can get the whole world to build some other idol other than God and serve it, they will hate God and die. Not live happy, fruitful lives. They will rot away and deteriorate over time to death. That sounds bad. Step one, resist the devil. <laughs> great biblical advice. Any questions? All right, we're just going to resist him, right? That's great advice, but how? Inevitably, I hope everybody says, well, that sounds good. Resist the devil. How do we do that? First Peter 5, 9. Everybody gets out there, okay, I got my, my devil resistance kit. Let's open it up. What's inside? The Word of God telling you to be firm in your faith, knowing. There's a lot more there. Uh, it says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Yeah, know that. But I, I, I like the ellipses after knowing. Be firm in your faith, knowing. Faith and knowing seem maybe different, right? I don't, I don't necessarily have faith that 2 plus 2 is 4. I know that. But really, it's just faith. We just agreed that 2 plus 2 equals 4 as a society. Right, I know that if I take my cup of coffee and I hold it up and drop it, it's going to hit the ground. But that's really just faith that it's going to happen because it's happened every time up to now. Could it magically float and hit the ceiling? I suppose. Everybody would be shocked by that. But I don't know until it's over. But here what we see is I'm going to resist the devil by being firm in my faith and by knowing. It isn't about outwitting the devil. It's not about Um, cleverly manipulating the devil to do something beneficial or sidestepping him or or avoiding him or placating. It's about being firm in your faith. And where does our faith come from? God, the Father. That's it. We cannot resist the devil without God. If you think you can put the Bible aside and go toe-to-toe with the devil... You know, Charlie Daniels, he knows a story about a guy that did it once, about a fiddle. But I don't know about that. That may not be true. (laughs) Who's to say? But outside of that example in song, you're not going to find a lot of people like, I don't know who Jesus Christ is, but I met the devil, and I beat him in a fiddle duel. And I'm the best. Like, I doubt it. I don't believe you. And also, the devil isn't going to play the fiddle. He will murder you with a fiddle. And make new fiddles with the sinew of your flesh and use it to... like the, the devil's not some dude that's walking around trying to win bets. He's trying to destroy us. Destroy us. We cannot stand firm against the devil without God. And there's not a thing we can do otherwise. It's not about our toughness or our resolve except that which comes by the blood of Christ. And then we see, we see Peter pivot a little bit out of perhaps the doom and gloom, a little into this too shall pass. After the necessary amount of suffering, God will exalt you. <clears throat> I find this to be uh, after First <laughs> Peter five ten, and after you have suffered a little while, <laughs> the God of all grace, who has called you to him, called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After a necessary amount is my summary of that. God will exalt you. Well, how much is necessary? How much is Peter's a little while? That's going to be between you and a sovereign God. Could it be your whole life? Yep. Could it be 15 minutes? Yeah. We talked a lot about suffering, and we we don't know exactly what's going to come next. We certainly don't want to just charge into arbitrary suffering and, and, and feign suffering so that we look pious or that we look as if we're, we're growing in this regard. But if we do the things God has called us to do, suffering will begin, and it will likely be our whole life. The world will hate us. The world will make us suffer. Times will be tough. We will be frustrated. We will be thwarted. But we can trust in a good, powerful, and sovereign God that is for us. The God of all grace who has called you to eternal glory. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now if if there's a better promise, I don't know what it is. I mean, it doesn't matter what we're going through here. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that we're not going through anything. When we look at the way the scale tips, it might tempt us to say, well, what's on this side of the scale is just irrelevant. No, it's not. God's talking a lot about that. The suffering is real. The way we conduct ourselves in the midst of it is real. We have choices to make. We need to be depending on God there. But we know on the other end of this spectrum is God waiting in his time when it's perfect after the necessary suffering is completed to exalt us. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you through the eternal glory of Christ. Are you kidding? If we don't believe that, then it's going to show. We're going to be struggling and everything. We're going to be completely weeping and mourning and over all the little stuff, and it's all weighing down on us and it's beating us up because we really don't believe that this is on the other side. We feel it's better to spend time... Wallowing around in, 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 in sadness about things that are happening around us when in reality we should be back to work, suffering well. Yeah, does it hurt? Yes, absolutely. The example that Jesus set, and we'll talk about Jesus' examples until I can't talk about anything anymore, but He's standing at the bedside of Lazarus who's dead. He's going to bring him back to life. Christ knows. Now, if, if Emma dropped dead right now, and I knew I got a text from God and said, Emma's going to die, but you're going to walk up there, and I'm going to bring her back to life. I don't think I'd be, I'd be like, well, it's, Emma's dead. Like, I know, but look, watch. I'd be pumped up. Watch this. Boom, she's back. We don't need to be sad. But what did Jesus do? He wept. He knew he was coming back, and he wept. You ever wonder why it 's because the world is not the world that God wants when we suffer, when we see people dying, when we see other people suffering, we weep because it is sad it 's not the end. Jesus stopped weeping and he resurrected, but he wept so the the, the the reality is we are dealing with things when bad things happen, when suffering occurs. We know this too shall pass. We know that God's going to exalt us. We know we've got a good and powerful, sovereign God. But also, it is a sadness that exists in the world that is so fallen and so far away from the perfection that God intended and created. But the final thing here is that it applies in the furnace as much as the mountaintop. You know, we love to get together and high-five when things are going great. There's never weeping and gnashing of teeth when someone, you know, has a great achievement in life. And we say, whoa, what a blessing. That's great. You know, God's for you. Who could be against you, right? Someone gets cancer, we never say, great, if God's for you, who could be against you? Like, what are you talking about? I got cancer. Like, yeah, well, hey, you know, that's great, right? Because it means if you die, you get to go to God sooner. Like, what a terrible thing to say. Like, we would never do that. But we need to know that the good stuff, the mountaintop moments, this too will pass. It may not feel like suffering, but it's not going to last forever. So when we get to those moments, yes, let's enjoy and let's rejoice in them just like we weep when the sad times come. But we know that even those mountaintop moments are like mountaintops this high (laughs) compared to a God that's infinite. We'll never look back and be like, oh boy, heaven's pretty good. Man, you remember when I got that perfect score on that exam? Man, that was great. I mean, this is good here in heaven, but that was so great. I wish I'd go back and live that. Nobody's going to say that in heaven. No one's even going to we'll have to go read that. I'm like, look at all the stuff we thought was so great. Well, how stupid were we? But at the time, it was great, so we did what we were supposed to do. And then we get to the final greetings. I summarize this pretty quickly. And I did it on purpose, and it worked, because was like, I don't think this makes a lot of sense. But here's what he says. Hello from the brothers. He cites a name. The brothers encourage you to not give up. Hello from the churches. I love this. Uh, they're not really speaking in code per se, but, um, you know, it, it feels that way a little bit, right? They're trying to cloak a little bit of their language just in case things were intercepted. They don't want to make trouble. She who is at Babylon, <laughs> right? Is that the church of Rome? No, no, no. It's a lady in Babylon. Don't worry about that, right? Uh huh. Who is likewise chosen since you greetings, so does Mark, my son, right? And then he ends with love each other and peace. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all you who are in Christ. I mean, the, that's, hey from Sylvanas. Hey from the church. Give each other a smooch. I'm out of here. Bing, <laughs> bing, 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 That's it. Not a long-winded and remember the things that, no, that's it. It's done. Which leads us to our final four. Four key points here. Leadership must shepherd as servants. Membership must submit as servants. And all must be humble as servants and all must endure as servants. I don't know if you caught this, but there's a theme to these four points. It's as servants. <laughs> and it's critical. This is what I believe Peter's culmination is, right? When we talk about all these aspects. These are great aspects of service. Submission. Subjection. Honoring not worrying, right? These are, this is all about being good. There's no room for, for, for professional elders. There's a great book that I, I've enjoyed uh, called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. And it's just talking about the pastorship in general. Doesn't, it's not called to be a professional job. I mean, it is a profession and people are paid to do it and that's fine. But the notion of being professional indicates that there's a way to do it that's probably the right and best way. That's not true of this role. To lead by example is commanded. And those examples are going to be varied. To put it it plainly, I can't lead by example, let's say. I cannot lead by example on how to uh, grow up as a godly woman. I can talk about it, but I don't have that capability. That's why we need a church. But what I can do for Christ, I will do for Christ. It's commanded that I do so. Not do as I say, not what I do. That's not what we're supposed to do. It's do what I say and I do. We all know that people that say stuff and don't do it don't get listened to for very long. May it never be with with eldership. Leaders that dominate their flock are doomed. Now, I don't think Peter says the word doomed there, uh, but I will, because if you take this position of being in charge without any, any sort of guidance or submission to the congregation, that is not what Christ did. And if we take a position that is supposed to act like Christ to the church, and we do the opposite of Christ, we are in a world of hurt. Doom seems reasonable. If you are dominating your flock, if you are taking absolute control, and you don't really care, and you're just wanting to be in charge, you're doomed. Now, this doesn't mean weakness, but it means steadfastness. People might look at Christ's work on the cross and say, gosh, he wasn't even strong enough. I've heard this before. Why didn't he just you know, break the cross in half and come down and start wailing on people, right? Like he could have, I'm sure the Jews would have, were waiting for that to happen. Then we'll know he's the Messiah, right? He was, God can do whatever he wants to do, but he didn't. But would you say that Christ was weak on the cross? I would not. He endured more suffering than any human ever has, ever will, or ever could, period. Same for leadership. Not Coming up here and banging on things and yelling at people and it's not a sign of weakness as a leadership. It means steadfastness. Serve the congregation. Help those that you're in leadership over. Instill in them through your actions day in and day out that you care for them and want them to succeed. That goes a long way. People show up and say, this guy's weak. He doesn't even like yell or anything. And the people that work or serve underneath, i will come to your defense real quick. What are you talking about? The best person I've ever worked for. Pray for him regularly. Doing a great job. Really pleased. I'm thankful for him. It's nice not to have somebody that rules with an iron scepter and is thumping skulls all the time. We don't really know. Everyone's walking on eggshells. I don't miss any of that. He's not perfect. He confesses the sin and we pray all the time together. It's wonderful. I actually feel like somebody cares and is, is here to help me. That's what we're supposed to be modeling. And we will say, good for you. You are great at this. What's going on? I'm just trying to do what Christ did. If you think this is good, wait till you meet Jesus Christ. Because he takes this way to the next level. It doesn't say cast all your cares on the elders because they care for you. <laughs> Hopefully, if you try that, the elders will be like, no, thank you. I don't need those. I got my own. <laughs> cast those northward. Those need to go to God, not me. But we're modeling that. We're trying to model that as leadership. And if you're in the congregation, they go, well, okay, Well, that sounds good. But what about us? Surprise, surprise, it's the same thing. If you remember back to our 1st and 2nd Timothy studies, the only things that really set aside qualification for leaders is some degree of community verification that these people are decent leaders. That's really it. There's no magical tone. We didn't get a, a mailing from heaven that said, hey, the following people meet criteria for leadership. Please choose two. Boy, that would have been convenient, but that's not the case. So we have to look around and say, who's, who's met the criteria? Who's been appointed? by God, based on criteria in the church. And lo and behold, these things manifest. It's incredible how much we don't want to listen to the Holy Spirit when it, the Holy Spirit oftentimes has the answers. When it comes to the membership, guess what? Mike and I are members of this congregation. It's not special non-membership, that we don't have... And then the members. We are a part of the family. Christ is the head of the church. We're overseers. There's a reason that word exists. It's not in charge. It's not the Christ. We are not the Messiahs. We are overseers. We, as all of us, submit to Christ as the head of the church. And like I mentioned before, members tend to submit to leaders who submit. So if the leaders are submitting to Christ and serving the congregation, it's far easier uh, to submit to that. But Even if the leaders are not perfect, submission is warranted. Now, I'll caveat this with abuse. I'm not talking about, listen, you'll submit, or the, you know, we're going to beat you. or No, abuse is different. Abuse is, is, a, is a crime. and needs to be handled as a criminal, period. But what I'm talking about are folks that maybe are missing some things. Uh, they got moral failings. We hear this talked about a lot. Uh, they're not perfect. I don't like the way they view this. I don't agree with that. I don't like the, the hairstyle. The... Submission is still warranted. And if you can't submit, if you say, this is a critical issue for me, it's something fundamental and broken, there's two options. One, and I would encourage you to do this, meet with the elders. Talk about the problems. Maybe you'll find yourself, like examples in the Bible that we see of two people saying, fair enough, fare thee well. When people leave a church because they've come to a place that they can no longer serve an elder or the church because of a fundamental disagreement at a low level, fine. If you just don't want to go to the church because, you know, he's growing a beard and like, he seems like he does this every couple of years. Yeah. I'm still trying. If that's a reason for you not to come back to church, let's do better. Congregation, let's do better. Let's do better than that. If you're looking for a handsome elder, you won't find one here. No offense, Mike, but the two of us put together are about half, half as handsome as less than half the people in the city. and That's fine. But we're not, we're, to be, uh, we're not trying to be—we're not trying to be a, a worldly attractive. We're trying to do what God called us to do, and God has called some pretty gnarly people to do some pretty awesome stuff. And I—I I think I can say for both of us, we'd be more than happy to be to be gnarly people doing awesome stuff for God. That ain't the true, That ain't the case at every church. Uh, but guess what? If you've got an issue, let the leaders know. I covet the opportunity for somebody to say, "I got a problem, man. I, you know this or that." Uh, uh. I can't square that up in my head and it's a big issue. No, that's okay. We can talk through that. Third, all must be humble as servants. Humble congregants become humble leaders. Humble leaders build humble congregants. It's that leadership by example. If you wonder how this can be like, well, that seems kind of it's reductive, right? Like a, <laughs> It's because Christ is the head of the church. He is the most humble. He is the preeminent leader and also the preeminent congregant. He modeled exactly how to serve the Father's will. Perfectly. Unto death. On a cross. No better example of how to be a good church member than Jesus Christ. Well, what about a leadership example? Also Jesus Christ. (laughs) That's why it's reductive. We both, all of us serve, the congregants and the leaders all serve the same Jesus. Both examples set perfectly by Jesus. But our humility must be genuine and not coerced. You might say, well, the Holy Spirit's coercing me. All right, well, that's kind of the loophole, I guess. If the Holy Spirit's coercing you, good. But I'm talking about faking it. I'm, not ta- I'm, I'm emulating you to stay out of the firefight. I'm getting yelled at because I'm not hum- humble enough. Well, that's a bigger issue in leadership. But don't fake it. Work on that. If you've got problems with it, if you've got problems submitting to somebody because you find them to be a hardhead or a bigot or a jerk, talk to them. If they won't talk to you, talk to another person in leadership. If you've got a huge problem with me or with Mike, and you don't even want to speak to me or with Mike, speak to the other one of us. I like Mike a lot, but he's not perfect. And Mike likes me a lot, but I'm not perfect. Mike will be the first probably to tell you that, yeah, he's got some peccadillos. He's tough to work with in some some cases, right? Or maybe he's rubbed you the wrong way. Well, he rubbed me the wrong way too, right? I still love him. I still serve beside him because we're in this together. Let's talk that through. And why? Because we all must endure as servants. Love it or hate it, The church is the organization by which God has chosen to reach the world with his good news. That's his call. Not ours. We're just following the the, the example set by Christ. He built it. We're going to keep it running best we can. Trials and tribulations? Not going to come. Suffering? Yup. Be ready. Stay the course. It's rocky. It's terrible. I hate it. Stay the course. How? Trust in God. He will not abandon you nor forsake you. He will not. You may feel, right? You may feel, you may start to tell yourself, because yourself, even though you've died to yourself, will start to resurrect a little and say, I think God's abandoned you. And your brain will say, you know, you're right, because why would I be suffering like this if God was on my side? You can run this list backwards and figure out exactly what's happening. God's abandoned me. Well, then I don't trust Him. So I'm not going to stay the course, and I will not go through trials or tribulations. I'll be an inert, just kind of floating around, you know, like a turd in a cistern, just can't flush me, can't get rid of me. Here I sit, useless. Here comes suffering. All right, let's do it. Stay the course. I can't stay the course. It's too difficult. I don't like it. I'm going to have to trust in God. I can't figure out a trust in God. I don't think God's on my side. You go to the Word, and the Word tells us He will not abandon you or He will not forsake you. He will not. Okay, if He's not abandoning me and He's not forsaking me, then I'm going to trust in that, and I can stay the course. And when all this is done and the tribulation is over, and they say, how did you get through the flood and cancer, the, the cancer, you know, you, you had cancer and then you lost a loved one and then the flood took out your house and yet you're still saying that God is good. How do you do that? Uh, because God will neither abandon nor forsake me. Well, I want to know what, what you know, what, which bootstrap did you grab? Talk about your chutzpah. You know, give me, give me your, let me know how the grit, describe your grit to me. Like, uh, he will not abandon me or forsake me. Well, you're just saying God did it. Amen. <laughs> there's peace in that, brethren. But believe me, there's peace in never having, never having for good or bad to say, well, it's because I'm so good, right? That's easy to say, it's because I'm so bad. I make tons of bad decisions. That's an easy one. But the good things that happen, the ability to make it through tough times, the ability to endure as a servant is because when I serve God, then i got to trust in God. And if I trust in God, then I know He won't abandon me. And I can stay the course because I know God's on my side. He's got my back. When the necessary amount of suffering is complete, I'm going to be exalted. I get some of His glory paid for by Christ. I can't lose. I cannot lose. Believe it, church. So what about us? As leaders, how are we modeling Christ-like leadership? If you're not in leadership... Blessings to you because it's no picnic, but if you're thinking, well, I've tried, I want to be, but I'm just so nervous about it, study Christ's example. Tons of great books that are, are Christ-centered with lots of good tips, and it's a, it's a world we live in, so there's, it's not like anytime someone has a question about, hey, you know, do we need to, how, much, how big of a sewer line should we put in here and say, well, the Lord says in good, i like, oh, okay. Sometimes you do have to just make decisions, but largely when we see, what we see Christ doing, the way that he modeled his leadership was dependence on those around him, and that comes by trusting that God's going to take care of what needs to be taken care of. I need a plumber? Great. Don't, Lord, help me in my endeavor and start digging and doing your own plumbing with no training. That's foolishness. But you could pray that as you begin to reach out to plumbers that God would be sending the right one there, someone that's going to do good work and be trustworthy. But guess what? If they're not, and they scam the church out of money and do bad work, then you find another one. And you say, let's pray for that person, right? Right? Maybe they come back in six months feeling terrible about what happened. Wanting to make it right. Burning them up inside. I was waiting for you to assume and you never did. I talked to a buddy of mine, he said, You guys have been praying for me every week. Yeah, that's right. Well, what's that about? Never know. As church members, how are we modeling Christ-like submission? In this church, the leadership are members, so. I get to ask myself both of these. But if I'm not submitting to the congregation, then I'm not really submitting to Christ. I'm not looking as an overseer, but I'm looking as a dictator. That's not cool. For those of us that are serving, if you've got problems with the eldership, please let us know. If you have difficulty submitting, if you're struggling to submit because of a problem, we, we, we want to know. We do want to know. And elsewise, we want to follow Christ's example of submission. Thirdly, as believers... How are we viewing ourselves compared to the world? You know, if we're going to submit to the world and help them and aid them in their needs and show them uh, how Christ lived, then we're going to have to probably sacrifice a lot of ourselves for the world's sake, going to tough places, having tough conversations. How are we viewing ourselves? We see ourselves as the betters? Or do we see ourselves as equals except for what God has done? If we see ourselves as equals except for God, then we should be easily driven outside these doors to talk to people about the good news of the blood of Christ. What it did for me, it can do for you. That's the truth. That's all I've got to go on. That's it. The man on the middle cross said, I could come. You should ask him if you can come. <laughs> well, How do I do that? Let's have the conversation. And lastly, as sufferers, how are we handling our trials? Now, this is a tough one because I feel like I don't suffer very much. I know there are people out there that have way worse situations going on than I do. And I'm always reticent to tell somebody that's in a worse place than me, suffer better. Seems a little disingenuous or perhaps haughty. It's not. I don't mean it to sound that way. This isn't a chastisement of people that are dealing with struggles and are in the place trying to equate and lean back on that trust in God phase where you feel forsaken and you feel abandoned and you know you're not, but you feel that way and you're struggling to make those two things equate. I'm not talking about that. That's natural and normal. That's repentance. Repentance is often hard and can take some time. What I'm talking about is if we cast to the world every bit of suffering as fruitless and pointless and and it's all random and just bad things happen and they don't mean anything. It's just the way the world works, it's hard. That's not what the Word tells us. Could we make the bad decision and suffer for it? Yes. But through trials and tribulations... We might be suffering for Christ. That's vastly different. That suffering we should be able to communicate is bigger than us. So as sufferers, how are we handling our trials? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for the Word of God. I thank you especially for 1 Peter that we've been preaching on for a while, Lord. Lord, I pray that if anybody has heard words here in the last few weeks, especially perhaps that have convicted them that uh, they, they want to, they want to approach life, they want to approach suffering and submission and servanthood, church membership in a new way or a better way or a different way, or they just have tons of questions, Lord. I pray that they will reach out. Let us know. We want to talk more about this. Uh, Lord, I'm so thankful for our congregations here. Uh, as I mentioned before, I want to lift up all the folks that are suffering right now that maybe don't even have a church to gather in. Florida, Lord, and, and I'll pray boldly for them, Lord, that, that for those that are believers, that this suffering will be used to f- grow your kingdom in a miraculous way, that perhaps oh, we heard your church was collapsed, and uh, you know, you guys got to be so bummed about it, and say, well, it was God's church to begin with, and I guess he just took it back, and we go again from here, and watch eyes open that maybe there is more to this world than just this world, Lord. For those that are in suffering and don't know you, Lord, I pray that folks will come alongside them and tell them the truth uh, of who you are, that there's something better coming, that as, as frustrating as this world can be and as beat up as we can be, Lord, that there is better. there are better things ahead for those who believe. And Lord, I pray that we can communicate that boldly. We pray for all those that have lost, Lord. We pray that they will find you, first and foremost. Uh, we pray that, uh, you know, obviously those that are sick and without power and are in the midst of struggles, Lord, that they find some comfort. Uh, But more than that, we pray that they find peace, Lord. And I pray, of course, that that peace comes from you. I thank you for this time together. I thank you for everybody that's in this congregation today. Thank you for your word and its encouragement.